was to be able to sing that song together in the world. One of my formative memories as a youngster was a man who led a Bible study uh, with my parents and other, a few other couples who had been imprisoned in China for 10 years um, during the communist uh, reign there early on and he was part of that mission society and had grown up there. Uh, the grace and the pro- and the love of Christ of the gospel was just so evident. I just can still remember the influence that he had just, uh, you know how little kids are, watching, listening, sneaking down the hall to hear what they were talking about. What an opportunity to uh, remember those kind of things and go on with it. If you would please turn in your Bibles with me, if you haven't already, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul, the first king of Israel, had already been told by God's prophet Samuel that he would have no royal dynasty following him. That was back in chapter 13. Why? Because he had not done what the Lord commanded, unquote. Then, as we saw last week, King Saul was also told by Samuel of the Lord's complete rejection of him as king here in chapter 15. Why? Because he had rejected the word of the Lord. Saul had deliberately refused to follow God's command to not only attack the Amalekites, but to devote to destruction the king, all the people, and everything they had. This command from the Lord was a reiteration of his command from 300 years before when the Amalekites had attacked God's people after delivering them from slavery in Egypt. We see that in Deuteronomy 25. So the purpose of Saul's military mission was actually divine judgment. And as expressed here in chapter 15, Amalek had continued her wickedness all this time. And, we could put it this way, the measure of God's wrath was now full and he demanded that it be taken out on the Amalekites in this particular fashion and Saul would have none of it as far as the details. The announcement of God's rejection of Saul as king came after Samuel confronted and rebuked Saul about how he had turned away from following the Lord and not carried out the Lord's instructions in verse 11 here in chapter 15. In this confrontation, Saul answered Samuel's questions with the all-time classic excuses that every one of us is way too familiar with. Basically, four things. Saul was saying, but I did obey. I completed 95% of what God told me to do. It was the people's fault. They took all those animals. 
And I was going to sacrifice the best of them to the Lord, Samuel. Well, Samuel also used Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 here in our text to make very plain Saul's problem of making a show of external devotion when his heart was operating in rebellion to God and not reverently submitting to the Lord. We ended last Sunday with verse 23b, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And today, we're going to finish chapter 15, which focuses on what we could say is Saul's pathetic attempt to somehow fix this situation at the very last minute. This is one of the Bible's most explicit pictures of what true repentance is by showing what it's not. You can't get much clearer than this passage is. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel 15, verses 24 through 35. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Whoa. Well, we can start with an initial observation. We see here a man's heart being revealed by his actions. When the purpose of these actions was to keep the position in the office that he now knew he had lost and still look good to the people of Israel. That's what Saul was after. But when we were going through the book of Hebrews, we spent some time dealing with a couple of very difficult to understand passages. Maybe some of you can remember those, Hebrews 6 especially, way back then. Our passage today illustrates what that Hebrew text teaches. I'd encourage everyone to go back to Hebrews 6, especially verses 4 through 8, and read it with Saul in mind. It's an Old Testament example of the truth that's taught there. What we see in, in our passage today, the first verses 24 through 31, is what superficial repentance looks like. And we're going to look at it in three parts. The first part is in verses 24 through 26, which is Saul's first appeal in verses 24 and 25, and then Samuel's response. And each part looks like that. Saul makes an appeal or comes up with a plan or wants to have something happen, and then we see Samuel's response to him. And on the first reading of this, it seems like Saul may be genuinely sincere, doesn't it? But alas, this is just not so. Saul seems to acknowledge his wrong in the first part of verse 24, but then the last part of 24 points out where he ultimately wants to go. Some of us are really good at maneuvering like this, aren't we? But all of us maneuver like that in our hearts. It's kind of our default setting. Say what's right, but then finally get to where your heart really wants to go. First part of verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. Sounds good. But then verse 24b, because, he says, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Look back at chapter 12, verse 14, and compare what he was told was the Lord's command. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord... And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, your God, it will be well. 
Saul used as his excuse, oh, the people were the ones. He used as his excuse what God had expressly forbidden for him and the people. Only fear the Lord. Only obey the Lord's voice and follow the Lord. In other words, for Saul, this meant do not fear the people and disobey me. And yet he starts off here admitting this is what his excuse was. In verse 25, Saul reveals a little more of his heart motives. He's now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. See what he's doing? Again, the first part sounds good. He's saying the right words. But why does he want Samuel to go back with him to worship? Well, verse 30, we skip down there, explains that pretty clearly. Here he says, then he said, I have sinned. Yet, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And here he says, you're God. He wants to save face, to be honored, to be well thought of by the people. And don't forget what Saul was busy doing right after his great act of willful disobedience against the Amalekites. In verse 12, the second part of verse 12 in this chapter when Samuel went looking for him, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. I obeyed. Everybody remember it. I'm setting up a monument for me. Kind of getting more obvious, isn't it? So... We see here that his heart mo- motives are really becoming clear. Really becoming clear. And it was told Samuel, come to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Come, Samuel, back with me to the people now. I've said it. Let's get back to normal. I want to be honored by the elders and by the people. And that's sort of what we're getting to see clearly and learn about Samuel's, quote, repentance, unquote, in verses 24 and 25. Do we see it clearly? On the surface, we see Saul saying the key words that we would expect, including a straightforward confession, I have sinned. Some of us would be so shaky and wanting this so badly that we would immediately say, oh good, it's over. I don't have to deal with this anymore. But not Samuel. He also admitted that he transgressed the commandment of the Lord and he asked for pardon and restoration, saying, return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Yet along with the right words, we have good reason to say that he's acting. 
His confession, first of all, is only to Samuel. In fact, he didn't confess even to Samuel until Samuel's accusations earlier in this chapter really left him no other choice. Secondly, he makes excuses. He blames the people. And this is very different from David's confession later, which communicated that he knew he deserved to be condemned. In other words, Saul did not acknowledge his personal guilt. And thirdly, he wants to save face and be honored. But he really isn't concerned about God's offended honor, is he? And the practical harm of his own sins upon all the people. This really shows up in verse 30 where Saul wants his own honor restored and wants to bow before the Lord, your God, Samuel. Verse 26, but we need to keep going, especially to see Samuel's response to this verbiage. It's very interesting. Verse 26, and Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. This statement acknowledges the suspicions about the true state of Saul's heart. And it shows that Samuel was not persuaded that Saul was demonstrating genuine repentance before him and the Lord. What does it tell us? It tells us that Samuel, who knew Saul very well, felt he had to repeat what he'd already said in verse 23. It's as if he said, Saul, did you really hear me? It's hardly a matter of you just saying, okay, I admit I did wrong, now let's get things back to normal. It's more or less what Samuel's telling him right here. Then we come to part two, verses 27 through 29. Saul's second appeal and Samuel's response. And we see him kind of desperate. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has from torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie. Or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. There is a sense of finality in these verses, isn't there? Samuel turned to leave. It was done. There really wasn't anything left to say. But Saul literally made one more grab to keep his power and position. And don't miss the word play here. It's kind of hard to miss. Saul tore Samuel's robe, and the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from Saul this day, and has given it to a neighbor. And we know that that's, we're getting really close to the introduction of David, which is in chapter 16. 
Verse 29 lets us see a different emphasis here of the word regret from the emphasis that we see when it's used for the Lord's genuine grief over Saul's disobedience in verse 11 and also here at the end of this chapter. Here the emphasis is God's determination to carry out his set purposes. And it's also used here to contrast Saul's kingship with David's in chapter 16 and following. What do I mean by that? Well, just think about this for a second. Saul was anointed king when the people demanded a king like all the other nations instead of what God had provided with the judges. True? God gave them what they wanted there, a man to fight their enemies, but without a heart for him as the Lord God Almighty. Remember how we talked about how this is very similar to what we read Paul writing in Romans 1 about the downward spiral of sin? Sometimes God gives us exactly what we're asking for to show how foolish we are and how far our hearts really are from Him. And it plays out with the consequences, such as the case with Saul. David, however, is described as the king that God chooses to give, and in 16, chapter 16, verse 1, as the king that God provides, look there, for himself. The Lord said to Samuel, chapter 16, verse 1, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. That's where we're going starting next week. David is described as God's choice, as the king God provides for himself. In other words, God's commitment to David's house will be unshakable, resting on God's unconditional commitment. We see that in all over the place in 2 Samuel 7, 13. God promises to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And we know what that's pointing to, don't we? Through his dynasty, his descendants would come the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Savior who will pay the sacrifice for sin. And then places like Psalm 132.11, which reiterate this truth, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One more insight. Uh, This one's from Richard Phillips. He writes, we might see Saul as representing the the works principle of God's law. Set forth by the voice of the people, Saul would be accepted by God so long as Saul obeyed God's commands. David, on the other hand, speaks, points to the type of, he speaks for God's gospel grace and so is upheld not by his own performance, which we know is not perfect, but with and by God's grace 
Jesus speaks similarly of anyone who comes to God not by the law, but by means of his gospel. See what he's saying there? Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. One of the purposes of God's law is to point out that nobody can keep it, which makes them realize they have a need for the Savior. That doesn't mean we chunk it. It means you can't get to God that way. And that's why Saul's kingship and his dynasty was on that conditional plane. It's a picture of the way God's plan of redemption is laid out so that we will see our need that only Christ can meet. The next appeal, part three here of what Saul tries to do is in verses 30 and 31. This is his last appeal in Samuel's response. Then Saul said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Now what's going on here? Saul was not operating, living by God's grace. So the main thing he was still concerned about was his own reputation and how he appeared to the people. And it's quite clear in what he says. Every one of us must say, there but for the grace of God go I. We can't just point our fingers at Saul. He should have known better. He could have done this or that. No. That's all of our default setting. That's the way we usually respond. It's God's grace that intervenes to change us in his son that he sent. And we see that illustrated in the Old Testament all the way through to the end of the New Testament. And this is one place where we see one of the biggest comparisons and contrasts in Scripture. There's a reason why God writes his holy book like this, isn't it? First Samuel, we've had 15 chapters of some incredible stories about impossible situations and the rebellion of the people and them demanding a king. And what is God doing? He's picturing what it looks like to try to live outside of his grace on your own terms there's Saul and now he's getting ready to introduce David who is going to be a type of and picture what it means to be under the rule of a king whose heart belongs to the Lord and we see the difference in their lives in their faith or lack of it and in their repentance when confronted with sin it's amazing. And as we go through it, um, I know as slow as we are, even though it's not really that slow, those, these comparisons and contrasts should, should just be written into our hearts so that we see the differences 
in ways that maybe we've never seen before. Samuel, right here, has an interesting response to him, doesn't he? So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Now, Samuel either had compassion on Saul here, or possibly had concern for what would be next. What, a power vacuum that would result if Saul was deposed before the new king was revealed? Or both of those things. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Now in verses 32 and 33, which was what this chapter is mainly known for because it's so gory, we can uh, spread at least some snide little smile here in the middle of trying to figure this out. But there's not really that much to figure it out. We can just say Agag is hacked. And that's what it says. Samuel had to be bone tired by now. From the years, from this whole experience. And we must not just rule this out. We can't understand this unless you've really been there or known somebody who has. And yet... Samuel knew the task here wasn't finished. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. He thought he'd gotten away. Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. Saul remains the example of the, Samuel, excuse me. Samuel remains the example of the faithful and obedient servant. And it seems like, To us, if you look at this progression, nothing gets easier. Nothing. His confrontations, his standing up for what God said, his issuing statements that God communicated him about his judgment upon these people, it doesn't get easier. And yet does Samuel just disappear before it's finished? No, he doesn't. And we get a clue about where his mind and heart is by the name he gives to God in verse 29. What is it? Most translations have something like the glory of Israel. Do you think of your God as the glory of Israel? 1 Chronicles 29.11 also uses this word this way. Um, Try to pick out which one is the same word. You know this verse. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. 
Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Isn't that great? Surprise, surprise. The same word that's used right here, the glory of Israel, is translated here, 1 Chronicles, as victory. That's because giving the Lord this title is meant to tell us a lot of truth about who God is, but also a lot about Samuel and why he was willing to do what God had commanded Saul to do, that now he had to do. And he didn't flinch. I think this is amazing. Samuel knew the Lord God Almighty. And with this view of God, he knew that the Lord's judgment on Agag was just. And he even reminded this king of his personal sins before he executed him in God's name. Agag was hoping his death sentence had been commuted by the reluctance of Saul. Just kind of swept under the rug. At least he'd get to live, probably. But he found Samuel. The prophet of God had called him, not Saul. We can't get a much more revealing picture of the destruction of all who face God's judgment without being forgiven in Christ than right here. Yes, it is this serious. And we must remember that Agag was violently judged only after a long period in which repentance and faith had been held out to him. It's a seldom mentioned fact. Likewise, God is giving sinners the long age or era that we live in to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Although we don't know how long each person's time is. But when Jesus returns at a time only known to God, what do we read? Matthew 25, 31, for example, then he will sit on his glorious throne and it's a throne of judgment. It will happen. Now, the end of this chapter has two verses that picture the aftermath of all this before we get to the introduction of David. Don't don't forget about these two verses. This is really not just interesting. This, this should grab our hearts. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he made, had made Saul king over Israel. Dale Ralph Davis writes, The Lord's communion with Saul as king through the prophet Samuel was now over. 
No more direction for Saul from God's word. Let that sink in. No more counsel. No more commands. No more encouragement. Without Samuel, the prophet of God, Saul is without the Lord's word. And that is an unbearable silence that we will see play out in Saul for the rest of the time in trying to go off and on and kill David. And he looks like he's crazy a lot of this coming time. The consequences are absolutely incredible. And they should be warnings to us. Now, we also read, not only was the separation happening, but Samuel grieved over Saul. What does that tell you about Samuel? Samuel had never been rooting for the king to fail. Many of us would have been. Probably most of us would have been. Who is going to picture that same attitude over and over again in the coming chapters? Not rooting for Saul to fail. Not taking advantage of weird circumstances where he's just right there and he's trying to kill you and you have an opportunity to get rid of him. You know you're the next king. David. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Because the true servant of God grieves over those who remain lost in sin. Even while sincerely laboring for their future salvation. No true messenger of God loves to bring a message of judgment. And anybody who has read the prophets in the Old Testament realizes that Almost every one of them was going, send me. And then there was a, ah, afterwards. How many people would choose that calling, that lifestyle? Oh, son, I want you to grow up and be a prophet of God's judgment for sin and rebellion. Great, sounds like fun. I'll be happy. Really? Because these guys were delivering the Lord's word to lost people, and they were delivering the Lord's indictment upon his people. And when the New Testament says things like, rejoice with those who are joyful, and be sorrowful for those who grieve. These guys are the pictures of it. This is what it takes. It takes trusting God. And it's the willingness to be vulnerable and feel. And still do what God wants you to do. 
about you, but that can rip your physical part to pieces. Samuel has incredible knowledge of the Lord God Almighty. And just think about him as a boy hearing his voice calling him to serve him his whole life. And then we see the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The second time we've seen it used that way where the regretting here is talking about the same kind of grief. It's in the same passage, the, the, um, the same sentence here as Samuel grieving over. And the regret here is God's. It's not the same as ours. Like, oh, I made a mistake. No, he did not make a mistake. He did not change his mind. He grieved over having to do it this way. But he knew that in, as far as bringing glory to who he was himself, this would be the way to really make it clear. Can we understand all that? No. Can we understand a lot of it? Yeah. But don't get hung up over it so much that it makes you diminish what is truly taught about the Lord's character in his word. The Lord himself was grieving. All of us who know the Lord through the person and work of Jesus Christ must look on the lost with compassion and love and eagerly extend God's message of salvation to sinners. Those who faithfully do this are those who most truly represent the heart of God to the world. This passage gives us a pretty clear picture of what that looks like. It's not just this extreme, and it's not just this extreme. It's both. It's because of his justice that will be carried out that we proclaim the message of the only way that man's sin can get paid for, or the only way that anyone can stand before the Lord God Almighty. And it's that heart that moves us. It's that heart that moved those couple hundred missionaries in 1930 to answer the call and go to China right before World War II communist. Just think about that. Who does that? People that have been called specifically by God to realize that, hey, this life, it's not mine. I've been called to take it to people who don't know him. And my life may not last long doing it, but it'll be worth it. We say we're glad to send. Unless it's us, our kids, or a family member. Because then we don't know whether we can handle it. God gives them the grace to go. 
and you love him, he will give you the grace to deal with it also. It's a package deal. It's what we're all called to support in one way or another. We're through with chapter 15. At least we can look back on it now, hopefully, as we see what God is about ready to do. You ever notice that as we go through these books of the Bible, we get all involved in the what the details are right then, and then we realize that, oh, God was doing this, but he was doing a whole lot of other things, too, that we didn't find out about until we get to the next part. Let's pray. Oh, God, we come before you humbled and rightly so. In fact, we we learn here, point blank, that a humble heart, once again, is what you desire from us to be able to depend and serve you with the strength of the Spirit. God, we, uh, we thank you for where you have each of us right now today, as hard as our circumstances may be. And we, we confess and admit that we're weak in, in trusting you and we keep not trusting you and we keep running back to you and we thank you for the cross that, that we can run to you. Often. All the time. And that as we do, we find out how faithful you are, how great you are, how the Spirit opens up the eyes of our hearts to understand your word, how your spirit empowers us to not just do, but, but to think differently. What a, what a great life you have given us to know you in this life. And God, we pray that as a body of Christ, that you would work in us not only as individuals, but but as your body to, to see the truth about you, about ourselves, about the church, about our area, the circumstances, what's going on around us, what's going on far away from us. And we pray that you'd open our eyes to see your redemptive purpose and plan, how you raise up people for specific responsibilities, how you gift us differently so that we can work together to, to get to know you and to proclaim your gospel in ways we never dreamed possible. And we just ask that you would do that amongst us. Oh God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his shed blood that covers all of our sin. We can stand before you clothed in his righteousness. Thank you for your grace. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.